Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's August 29th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Michael Warren of The Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me. It's our almost last podcast of the month of August. Not quite. We are going to get through this month, I think. I think so. Where is the? I mean, this has been the most eventful August in Washington and politics in the, since I think last August. Actually. Yeah, I I am so old that I remember when August was the month when everybody would go. Well, nothing much is going to happen here, so we could take <laughs> right. vacations off. I, I, it, it is interesting watching some of the, the the cable folks who decided that last week was probably not going to be a big news week, and uh, you know, coming back now and going. You know, the timing was wait impeccable. wait what what happened last what happened last week, Charlie? I, Was that did something big happen with regard to the news? Actually, you know, this is an interesting point. I was uh, I was having uh, coffee with uh, with a reporter yesterday and we were discussing an event that he he had been involved in about a year ago. And and we we started talking about, you know, there are no more, you know, you know, moments in in American politics anymore, by by which I mean, you know, these moments that that uh, that transform the landscape no matter how big the story is, a week later you go, yeah, what happened last week? Seriously. You know what? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean, this is the this is part of the problem is like every, we've been dialed up to 11 since uh, the beginning of 2017 or maybe this is the beginning of 2060. And so everything gets flattened out that even when you have something as dramatic as last week, it is now so last week. All right. Now, speaking of today, uh, as we are, 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 are speaking, we have breaking news out of the White House. Uh, the White House counsel, Don McGahn, is leaving. And, of course, this comes rather shortly after the report that he had uh, extensively cooperated with the, the special prosecutor, giving more than 30 hours of testimony, which raised an awful lot of uh, eyebrows. But also uh, it comes uh, just before what's going to be the next big story that will consume us for you know several news cycles, which will be the the confirmation hearings of uh, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. So, so Michael, give me some sense of what's happening this morning and your take on it. Sure. Well, we should give some credit to Axios, who reported that this morning. And uh, conveniently, uh, uh, President Trump tweeted it out, confirming that, uh, that report. So uh, I think that we can all take that as official now mm-hmm. that McGahn is leaving. Uh, look, I mean, <clears throat> McGahn is an interesting person within the the White House. He's been there from the beginning. Uh, Not a lot of people in the sort of upper echelons of the West Wing staff uh, can say that. Um, He is uh, the most important lawyer in in the White House and the West Wing. Um, And you can almost look at his his term there sort of bifurcated between what you just talked about, the, the, um, uh, Charlie, the, the Brett Kavanaugh, and before that, the Neil Gorsuch, and all the other lower court nominations uh, for which uh, McGahn has sort of uh, been the lead in his office. He's got a couple of lawyers in the White House counsel's office who sort of focus solely on those nominations and really ushering those in. He's a, he's a Republican conservative establishment figure as much as you can be in the Trump White House. Um, and, and he's really been uh, the, the person to sort of uh, help uh, connect judicial conservatives uh, to the president uh, while he's been in the White House and uh, and make sure those nominations go through. Yeah, it's, um, it's hard to it's hard to overstate the importance of that role that he's played. It's huge. It's yeah. huge. And and you do have to wonder if 
um, uh, if if his replacement will be anywhere near as effective, and, and it's, because it's not just talking to the president, it's talking with members of the Senate who have to confirm uh, these these nominees. So um, that's big. That he had credibility there, where he, uh, where, where whoever the president uh, picks to uh, replace him uh, could not. Now the other side of it is uh, is this question of McGahn's role in. All of the legal troubles that the Trump administration and the Trump and President Trump himself have found themselves in, and and that I think there was a big question mark. There was that story again. Uh, was it, again? Was it last week? I can't even remember. <laughs> uh, in the New York Times about Don McGahn uh, cooperating with uh, Special Counsel Mueller, um, giving them uh, uh, giving them everything they need. The, there was a question. I think I even mentioned on the podcast here about whether or not McGahn was a source, or rather, his lawyers were a source for that New York Times story, which was basically could be read as a kind of a CYA uh, operation by by McGahn to say, look, listen, I, I don't have any legal exposure here, or, or if I do, mm-hmm. I need to sort of get out in front of this, um, that his role in that and, and the and the fact that he was in these conversations, um, very important conversations that that could go if there is an obstruction of justice, uh, a, a charge here, an obstruction of justice um, implication here that he could be involved in. So that's a, that's a part of his legacy as White House Counsel, of his story of White House Counsel that I, I don't think we have closure on yet, um, and I don't know whether or not. His departure is uh, has has anything to do uh, with uh, the president uh, feeling, despite his what he says publicly, that McGahn may not be loyal enough. Well, I mean, it's a hell of a coincidence if it is a coincidence, because let's let's dial back to whenever it was that that story appeared, and you had uh, the, the the president tweeting out comparisons with. Well, he 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 didn't break bad publicly on on McGahn, but you know talked about John Dean as as as, as a rat. You know, if if the day that story appeared, you and I were talking and we were doing the over under, how long will it be before Don McCann quits uh, or is pushed out of the White House? Um, and the answer was a week and a half. We wouldn't have thought that was a coincidence. Right. You know, right. We, we don't know. All right. Let's talk about the winners and losers from last night's primaries. Uh, actually, it, w- it was rather consequential and, and dramatic. I, I was cautioned against uh, ov- overhyping the results of a of a primary election in um, uh, a primary in a, in a an off year election. But but let's talk about what happened in Arizona. In, in Arizona, the, the Republicans uh, dodged a bullet by uh, rejecting the members of the uh, Nutjob Caucus. Uh, Kelly Ward and uh, Joe Arpaio, uh, they have to be feeling very good about the fact uh, that uh, the McSally won that primary and won it uh, rather convincingly. So um, that was a big day. But I, I want to get your thoughts on what happened in Florida, because this was the big upset of the night where you have an unabashed Bernie Sanders like progressive African-American mayor of Tallahassee, Andrew Gillum, uh, Gillum, who wins um the Democratic primary for governor, and he's going to go up uh, against a very, very Trumpy Republican, um, uh, DeSantis. Uh, so, give me your take on on what, what's what's going on in Florida, what it might mean for the midterms and beyond. Well, I can tell you what it, <clears throat> I think it means for the parties, which is um, in Florida a. I think it's an increasingly red state, but you, I think we can still say it's a 50-50 state. It's certainly something that's contested every presidential year. Um, it has statewide elected officials who are Democrats and Republicans. Um, it, it, it's a purple state, but but shading uh, toward the red. Um, 
this is these two candidates, Ron DeSantis, the Republican uh, nominee, and, uh, and and Andrew Gillum, the Democrat, are the perfect candidates uh, for those the, for their party's base. They represent where those parties are going. You'll, let's talk about DeSantis first. Um, Adam Putnam was his opponent. He's this longtime, young, attractive. A Florida Republican politician. He was in the House for a number of years. He was agricultural commissioner in Florida, which is a very big deal. Lots of ag in in the state of Florida, um, and uh, and he was an establishment favorite. Um, once Ron DeSantis got the endorsement from Donald Trump, and once Ron DeSantis really embraced, he's always been sort of a very conservative Republican in in the House for a couple of cycles. Uh, but once he really embraced. Uh, his Trumpiness, um, he, he, the, the, it was over. The Republican primary was over. There was some polling that was suggesting that Putnam, who had been ahead and had lost, uh, was closing the gap uh, in the final weeks of the campaign. Um, but then it just turned out that that wasn't the case at all, and, and DeSantis sort of took it in a walk. Um, I think that 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 is who the Republican Party is, particularly the Republican Party in Florida, which in again, these big states, um, these are these parties are often re- just reflective of where the parties are nationally. Um, on the Democratic side, I would no, say, let me, let me sure. stick with that because because I, that's that's a key point is that, you know, this, you know that primary, I, I think, underlines how Trumpified the Republican Party has become uh, because that that race was not was not close. And DeSantis, who's a Yale and Harvard guy got pretty good academic credentials was willing to and i know i'm going to offend people here absolutely be clown himself with that one ad remember the you you see the ad where where that actually looks like an onion parody where he's reading <laughs> donald trump's book to his you know his, his daughter and they're building the wall and i mean it's 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 an it's an indication of of how far candidates have been willing to go this year to basically pledge their loyalty to donald trump and it was it was incredibly effective in the in the Florida primary, and 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 I think that that before last night, given how Trumpified he had become, uh, there were a lot of people who thought that this was going to be a a really big pickup opportunity. I, you're you're right that the the state you know remains purple has been trending red, but I think before last night the sense was that perhaps DeSantis was not the strongest candidate in the general election and that this was going to be a, you know, a lean Democrat. And then you got the result, uh, the, the, you know, Gwen Graham, who everybody had expected to win is beaten by this progressive. So give me your sense on all of that, because I, I mean, this, this was the biggest win of the progressive left wing of the party so far. I mean, you know, forget about New York congressional seats. This is the state of Florida. Definitely. Uh, just a little background. Gwen Graham uh, is uh, uh, comes from obviously a big Florida political family. Her father was Bob Graham, um, a sort of a legend in, in Florida Democratic uh, and, and Florida political history. Um, and yes, she was sort of on her way to the nomination, um, a, uh, a, a, a a familiar path, I think, for Florida Democrats over the last several cycles, which is uh, she was white, um, she was relatively moderate for for the Democratic Party, um, and and really sort of attempting to grab uh, the middle of the state, literally the middle of the state, um, the I four corridor, as it's often called, uh, between uh, the sort of uh, Jacksonville area and Tampa, going right through Orlando. These are all voters who are swing voters. They're suburban. Um, they're not necessarily. Uh, allied to one party or another. And I think a lot of Democrats 
nationally and in Florida have been frustrated because those type of candidates that they uh, that they nominate um, just end up losing because, again, the, the state is trending and I think the state's white voters are trending uh, Republican. Uh, and so it's it's sort of a, it seemed to be sort of a losing proposition. Um, that's what made Gillum's win interesting. It seems to be sort of a combination of progressive fervor within the party, which we're seeing nationally uh, across the country in Democratic parties, uh, as well as, uh, look, you can't uh, look away from his race uh, having an influence on this. Um, people tend to forget uh, uh, or I think overlook in large states that um, what, no matter what the large state is, it's going to have a large African-American population. Um and uh, increasingly, since the Obama era, those uh, voters vote. Um, he, uh, uh, Gillum, that is, is from Tallahassee uh, in the northern part of the state, practically South Georgia. Um, but he picked up a lot of votes in South Florida, which is where a lot of the uh, black population is uh, in the state. Um, so th- that combination of sort of progressive, uh, sort of activist base uh, and um, and the the minority vote, which is not as progressive, I would say ideologically. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, that combination, I think, really uh, changed things. The question here, the question you're raising, is: Does this make actually Ron DeSantis's path to winning the governorship there easier? Um, I'm not. I'm not so sure. I'm not sure how this all plays out. Yeah, and well, nobody knows how it plays out because essentially you have the establishments of both parties saying, you know, that their nominee is perhaps unelectable, and but one of these guys is going to get elected. And you know, when we're talking about Gillum, I mean, he is he he's, he's obviously a very very attractive and effective candidate. Um, by, by the way, before I get to the, the point I want to make here, the amount of money, I mean, the screw you amount of money that was spent in this this election is just <laughs> mind boggling, and this is one of these elections that. You know, sort of remind you how American politics is changing with all of the outside money from, you know, billionaires, you know, Tom Steyer and uh, George Soros and others that, that, that came in and when there was money on the other side as well. But in a lot of ways, you know, you know, Gillum is, you know, Medicare for all, you know, a hard line on, on, on gun control, talks about abolishing ICE, is in favor of the $15 minimum wage, all of those things. Um, it really is sort of will be testing. It's what sort of will be battle testing this belief among progressives in the Democratic Party that the way to respond in the era of Trump is to move hard left rather than toward the center. And they're they're trying this in a number of different areas. In a lot of ways, I think this matchup might be a preview of 2020. You know, what would happen if we had an election between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and or Elizabeth Warren? What would the fallout be? And I think that this is, uh, you know, the the, res- the results are going to have a profound impact on what's happening in the Democratic Party, which, uh, again, I mean, I don't see it this way that that the that the, the, the path to the future is to is to move as hard right. I, I mean, hard left. I, I don't see that that appeals to the the, you know, the reluctant Trump voter or the swing voters in, in the suburbs. But I could be wrong. Because as you point out, you have in this race the purest distillation of the, you know, of the of the id of both political parties. I think this is a really interesting question, Charlie. And I don't even I I agree with you that sort of the analysis of these races and uh, next door to Florida, Stacey Abrams, the uh, black Democrat uh, who's running for governor there uh, against uh, a very Trumpy uh, uh, white Republican. Very uh, very much a mirror. Very, very, very dynamic. uh, Agree. So those are two races, I think, now that are worth watching to see how it goes. Um, But it's also it. 
you, you can also overread these things. And um, it's it's hard to sort of uh, attach meaning, even though we all will do it and we will all make conclusions, um, to know whether that meaning is 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 correct. Because, uh, you know, these these the, the party, the Democratic Party, that is, it is moving hard left. I think it will be a preview of what happens in 2020. But does it have to do with uh, the, the, the desire among the American people at large, if, say, Democrats win in these states and win in 2020, to move left as well? Or is this um, very much a reaction in a very split 50-50 country with, that I think, a, a sizable portion of folks in the middle, 30%, maybe 40%, who are who are sort of not as ideologically extreme, um, of sort of reacting against um, what's uh, what, what the, the status quo and the status quo in, in 2018 and in 2020 will be Donald Trump's Republican Party and sort of the Trumpism. And I think you can actually look at it, um, uh, the 2016 election in, uh, in, in a lot of ways in this in this frame. Um, you know, it, 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 was it really a uh, an affirmation of sort of uh, everything about uh, Trump's approach to politics? Well, if you talk to Trump supporters, um, yes, and particularly Trump supporters who, who don't like those conservatives who don't like Trump, uh, they they will make this case that this is Trump's party now, this is Trump's America now. But of course, he won a uh, uh, he didn't even win the majority of the popular vote. He won in the electoral college, and he won uh, in, a, in an election that was sort of set up for change. Right after two terms of a Democratic president, and with a really a, a deeply flawed uh, Democratic nominee, um, that I think a lot of people in that middle who might have been willing to vote for a Democrat or a Republican. Um, we're sort of have pitted in, in in this in this sort of uh, uh, loser's bargain here uh, to 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 make a uh, to make a choice. I don't think that affirmed um, Trumpism as a no, sort of majority I, I, ideology, and I don't know if these uh, liberal Democrats winning will affirm that. But the fact of the matter is, is that elections matter, and elections have consequences. And if Andrew Gillum wins in Florida, and Stacey Abrams wins in Georgia, and say Kamala Harris wins in 2020, oh, yeah. it won't really matter. Because they will be in the driver's seat, and they will be um, uh, sort of driving a, I think, a more progressive, more left-leaning, uh, very far left in some of these cases uh, agenda, uh, and uh, and and will just uh, will just sort of be left to uh, to deal with the consequences. Yeah, but the one 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 other point uh, in Arizona, where Republicans did get the uh, Senate candidate, or at least the Republican establishment got the uh, Senate candidate that uh, they they wanted. Uh, there's a uh, not a lot of attention to the Arizona governor's race. Uh, you know, G- Governor Doug Ducey running for re-election, and uh, uh, the Democrats have decided to basically do the same thing in Arizona. They they nominated another, uh, you know, rather progressive candidate, uh, education official named David uh, Garcia, who's also, again, campaigning on universal health care, replacing ICE with something. So, you know, that would suggest that, uh, you know, Ducey is probably going to be in good shape. And of course, he's going to have to make a uh, a rather fraught decision in the next few weeks. I mean, imagine being in that position. You're running for re-election. You're on the ballot, given the dynamics of Arizona politics, and 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 you now have to uh, uh, select a successor to John McCain. That is that's uh, right. That 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 is uh, that that is bizarre. Um, can I say something really quickly about that, Please, Charlie? Do, I think, yeah. Because I think I think this is um, it's interesting you bring up Arizona because I think this is sort of a counterbalance to what we were just describing in Florida and Georgia and, and maybe some other states, which is um, that's not an open seat, right? Doug Ducey has the has the uh, advantage of incumbency, um, which means a lot. Um, so that sort of goes to my point, which is 
Um, there are a lot of other factors, um, and, and each individual state, each individual race is different. Um, and so while I think it's useful, it, it often is useful, and of course, this is like my entire career is based on this idea of sort of analyzing um, uh, uh, analyzing political trends and, and trying to find patterns, um, it's also important to remember that um, uh, that that there are all these other factors, and we sometimes tend to see the things that we want to see or that we <laughs> we don't want to see, but we fear uh, are happening. Uh, and some of these things are just uh, uh, just individualized. Yeah, that and that's that's something to remind ourselves of all the, the time. Uh, the one piece of really really good news uh, I thought was Ellen Grayson, who who wanted to make his uh, yes. his, his comeback to to Congress in Florida, not only uh, failed uh, to win the primary, I mean, he he got. He got skunked, which, you know, at, at least there's one result you can really get your hands around and go, that's wonderful. That's just that yeah. a good thing. That every, everybody, everybody except for, for Alan Grayson wins, I think, when 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 Alan Grayson loses. So that's I, I, uh, I, I agree with you on that. Uh, anything else that you're looking at over the next couple of days under normal circumstances, this we're going into a holiday where nothing happens. But of course, this is August and we live in Trump world. Uh, there's the deadline on Friday for uh, a candidate to agree to partic- participate in this in this new trade agreement. Uh, there's the sort of informal uh, consensus that uh, Bob Mueller might have to put the investigation, might, who knows, put the investigation on hold uh, because it's getting too close to the election. But we are getting closer to the second Paul Manafort trial. Um, any Anything else that you're looking at uh, over the next couple of days, you know, just short term 48 hours? No, not forty-eight hours. I mean, this is it's dangerous, right? Because uh, who knows what's what's going to come out. Um, I, I I will say it's really interesting how um, in this kind of uh, you know every twenty-four forty-eight hours there's an OMG moment. Everybody just I can't I believe know. this happened or whatever. That that has not been the case with Brett Kavanaugh. We talked about him at the beginning of the podcast. Um, his nomination. Um, his attempt to 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 be uh, named to the Supreme Court um, has really, uh, to this point, and, and of course I'll be proven wrong within 24 hours, uh, has gone off without a hitch. And that's a um, really good point. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's it, it, it's notable because it's so different than every other political development uh, of the past uh, 18, 20, 24 months. So um, that's I think a, a, a something to uh, notice. And 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 again, I, I come back to this. I've been making this point. Ever since Neil Gorsuch was named to the Supreme Court, which is uh, in the Trump era and in the Trump administration, his and the administration's biggest successes have come when uh, when he has essentially farmed out or outsourced the uh, the, the, the legwork to other people who have devoted their careers and their lives uh, to these causes. Um, and, and, and obviously the best organized uh, and, and the most effective is the sort of conservative uh, uh, judicial network uh, around the federal society and others um, who really have uh, they, well, they've changed American history by by really putting their 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 um, uh, their their nose to the grindstone and and working on this for decades. And um, it's just something to reflect on as we as we as all the news sort of buzzes around our heads. In sort of book, bookend where we began uh, the announcement today that uh, Don McGahn, who has played a central role in that whole process, uh, is uh, is leaving the White House or will leave the the White House after the uh, the, the Kavanaugh the expected. 
um, confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it very, very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We, we will be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.